This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist and I started Self Work six and a half years ago now in order to extend the walls of my practice to many groups, those of you who might be very interested in psychology or maybe you're in therapy, to those of you who might even be pretty skeptical about the whole thing, but you're curious enough or sadly unhappy enough to listen to Self Work. You know, sometimes the very decision on what to talk about here at Self Work seems difficult, as the possibilities are endless, really. But since May is Mental Health Awareness Month, I wanted to do something special, although any month is Mental Health Awareness Month for me. So to help me get organized, I turned to an old teacher of mine who's an internationally known expert on depression, Dr. Michael Yepko. I took some time and listened in to one of his YouTube presentations on the current research in depression and what the best thinking is about its causes and its treatment. I'll have that YouTube presentation linked in the show notes. It was like going back and talking to an old teacher from your high school. I took several of his trainings years ago, maybe eight or ten years into me being a therapist. He's a cognitive behavioral guy, so focuses a lot on mental bad habits or errors in thinking. But he also has a very no-nonsense and compassionate approach to the topic, as he's dedicated his whole life to trying to figure out what exactly will help and why it helps. So his talk was on the five most common mistakes that depression can hold, and that's what I'm going to talk about. But of course, I'll add my own two cents, and we'll talk about how to combat them. I'll add in some of my own experiences and some stories so that hopefully you can try and see if you're making any of those mistakes, whether or not you consider yourself depressed or not. For the listener email response this week, I'm going to comment on a review that was left on Apple for self-work, a kind of... Quote, I was really looking forward to listening, but got disappointed. <laughs> kind of review, end of quote. I'm hoping to address what I thought were the listeners' comments, as I could very well see what had disappointed them. So I dug a little deeper, and we'll let you know what I found. But before we go on, Buy Optimizer's product, Magnesium Breakthrough, has a new offer. So let's hear what it is and how this supplement can help you. Hey guys, I want to share with you that recently I've been working on some very important projects that have very short deadlines as always, right? Seems everything today is ASAP. Anyway, I have not been able to keep up with all of my self-care routine. I certainly haven't had breaks to have proper meals and I'm drinking way too much iced tea. I was starting to get really stressed out when I remembered that the magnesium breakthrough I take every night is also a great support for stress management. I'd kind of forgotten that. In fact, magnesium is responsible for over 300 body reactions, and Magnesium Breakthrough is the only magnesium formula that delivers all seven different forms of magnesium. I didn't know there were seven forms, one of them being feeling more calm, centered, and in control of our stress. If you're trying to balance life demands, give it a try. Trust me, your mind and your body will thank you for it. What you can do is visit magbreakthrough.com slash selfwork and order now. Oh, in addition to the discount you get by using promo code selfwork10, so that's different, selfwork10, they're also amazing gifts with purchase. That's why I love shopping at Buy Optimizers. 
Again, go to magbreakthrough.com slash self-work to get your magnesium breakthrough and find out this month's gift with purchase. The training I received in graduate school was very diverse as far as actual people I was trying to treat, and I loved it. I started for a year and a half interning at a Texas state hospital a few miles outside of Dallas. Then I went to a rehab facility, then to a family therapy institute, and then to doing work at Parkland Hospital in Dallas on a traumatic burn unit in the ER psychiatric triage center, the epilepsy center, and the hospital outpatient center. Interns there were also used for what's called consult liaison. We'd be called in to assess people who were in the hospital for medical reasons, but were also showing signs of mental illness, PTSD, depression, anxiety, whatever. It was a fascinating exposure to the extremely wide spectrum of mental illness that exists, and I got a much deeper understanding of how people cope with distress, trauma, and illness than if I'd, say, worked in a student center at a college. Now, I'm not knocking that, especially these days. The younger generation's struggle with depression is killing them as their iPhone screen plays more and more into their sense of isolation and pressure. But for the late 80s and early 90s, that was way before iPhones even existed. I loved the training I got and the diversity of people I saw. What I immediately began to understand was how some people can go through really horrible experiences, and they don't get depressed. They don't have PTSD. And then some do. This is not about weakness or anything having to do with that. It's simply a question that comes to mind that's so fascinating. And that's really what Michael Yapko was talking about in this YouTube presentation. He spent his whole life trying to understand why this is. He's the author of several books for clinicians, but also several for the public, like Depression is Contagious and Breaking the Patterns of Depression. I was drawn to take his seminars because he was so solution-focused, meaning he wanted to help people learn the skills they needed to not become depressed or to prevent relapse from depression. And you all know I'm very drawn to what you can do about it. So I was looking for inspiration for May being Mental Health Awareness Month, and I watched the YouTube video I mentioned in the intro where Michael was speaking in Australia. Here are a few facts that he mentioned. There is no one reason for depression, and there's not one treatment for it either. As he said quite bluntly, the best approach is the one that works for you. (laughs) Now, this may be good news, but not such good news. But there are some skills that he and other researchers have written about that can explain why some people may become depressed, remain depressed, or relapse, and why others don't. Here's some other major points. Depression isn't caused by a gene. There are genes that may cause you to be more vulnerable. But so far, the biological side of depression isn't well understood and may even be a small part of its creation. In fact, depression is now seen, and I've mentioned this before on self-work, as a biopsychosocial disorder, meaning all three of those components are very important in its existence. The biological side, the psychological side, and the societal aspects. 
This month, we're going to focus on five psychological skills that Dr. Yapko mentioned that can insulate you from depression. The good news, as Yapko points out, is that they are learnable, and if you use them, research has shown that they actually decrease depression. He stresses that it's not the things that happen to you that lead to depression. It's how you interpret and respond to that experience or fact. What happens to you can make knowing these skills even more needed. Now, don't get me wrong. There can be some terrible things that happen to you, and those are important. Those are some of the societal reasons for depression. But he would remind you that these skills can help no matter how depression has been created. Resilience also seems important here to think about. Nick Wignall, who I did an interview with years and years ago, who's also a psychologist, in his column on Medium states, Research shows that highly resilient people tend to possess three common traits, acceptance, purpose, and flexibility. Importantly, we know that these are not simply genetic gifts some lucky few are born with. They're skills all of us can learn to build. Again, here's this emphasis on building skills. His message is one of hope as well, and there are definite similarities between what he says in this article with what Michael Yapko is teaching. I'm not saying it's easy. Some of us are given much harder lives to live than others. There's no fairness in that. But what you do with that, how you interpret that, is paramount. So, what are the five? Here they are. Too much of an internal orientation and a lack of cognitive flexibility. Generating your own stress by making bad decisions. Rumination and believing it's doing some good. Overly global thinking and unrealistic expectations. Now, they all sound kind of clinical, I know. (laughs) But I'm going to try to make them very real world so we can take them apart and you can start practicing them. So let's bring the first one into focus and into your real experience and mine today on self-work. But now, let's hear from BetterHelp. I know that this company has been in the news lately about selling private information to social media outlets, and several of you have written to me about it. BetterHelp gets that kind of publicity because mostly of how big they are. Other apps have done the same thing that they have done. Now, I'm not making excuses. It is wrong what they have done. However, new rules and guidelines have been agreed upon, and you cannot meet BetterHelp's availability and ease of use. So, for now at least, I'm still endorsing them. Twenty twenty two is ending, which was a hard year for many, as they're trying to heal from the impact of the pandemic, and now we're welcoming twenty twenty three with more people than ever needing help with anxiety and depression. The most common problem I hear from those seeking therapy is how hard it is to find a therapist. BetterHelp solves those problems. After you make the first contact, their standard is to offer names of therapists to you in less than two days, and you can talk to them in the first session to see if it's a good fit. If so, you're on your way. But if not, rather than going through an awkward call or email, you simply let BetterHelp know, and they'll ask what it was you didn't like and find someone else for you. You can text, chat, or talk virtually. All of those avenues are open to you. I'm a therapist because I got good therapy. I know how much of a difference it can make. I reached out, and so can you. Here's BetterHelp's offer for self-work listeners. 10% off your first month of sessions if you use this link. BetterHelp.com slash self-work. There's never a better time than today to reach out and get help. BetterHelp.com slash 
self-work. So let's get down to talking about this thing called internal orientation. This can happen in two ways. You can have a thought and it becomes what you believe, or you can use emotions to make decisions, meaning you're more governed by your emotions than anything else. If I feel it, it must be true. That's the internal part of it. It's your thoughts and your emotions. Now, before anyone shouts out, you're saying that I should suppress my emotions, that my hurt and anger and disgust and fear doesn't matter? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. Hell, I wrote a book about the danger of perfectly hidden depression, which is all about pushing away feelings that are vital to connect with and staying in tight emotional control. So no, that's not what I mean. But you might note that I said, connect with them, not necessarily let them guide my decision making. So an internal orientation is the habit of allowing thoughts or emotions to become your reality rather than you giving yourself time to process an event or an experience so that you can think of other considerations, maybe develop other feelings, other thoughts. Yapko called this mastering the art of not knowing. Let's use an example that hopefully will be helpful. I worked with a woman several years ago that had recently been demoted at her job from a fairly high supervisory role to one where she was in charge of far fewer employees. And in fact, the company moved almost completely away from including her in decision-making roles. She was devastated. She'd given years of herself to this company, and she spent multiple sessions talking about her rage and anger and the sense of unfairness. And she became more and more depressed. She admitted being known as a perfectionist, but at the same time, felt as if she'd run her teams effectively. She put off other life choices as she was highly professionally driven, and so the despair she now felt was intense. Not only that, but she was the primary wage earner in her family, so that caused its own problems. What I'd admired about working with her was that along the way, she'd known that she had some problems interacting well with others and had attended several training workshops to look at just what she could learn that would help her be more effective. So I saw her as really having the capacity to be honest with herself. If we look at her, let's call her Deborah. If we look at Deborah's situation as a means of learning about what leads to depression, I don't think any one of us would say, well, Deborah didn't have the right to be angry. Of course she had reasons to be angry. But if she over relied on that anger, if it became her sole reality, if feeling angry was the emotion that defined her and frankly was beginning to make her feel as if she was a victim, which was playing out in other ways in her life, then that internal orientation, the focus on the anger she was feeling, wasn't going to lead her away from depression. It was going to lead her straight into it more and more deeply. Now, of course, her anger was also leading her to believe certain other things, like they had it in for me from the very beginning. Now, I'm not saying that the culture in which she was working did not have misogyny within it. It definitely did. I'd heard about this from other females who were in that culture. But her anger was leading her elsewhere. For example, this is my husband's fault because my stress level is so high, I didn't do my best work. Again, there was stress in the marriage, which was very high, and bad financial decisions had been made by both of them. But how is she building a case 
an internal orientation toward becoming more depressed due to her anger. So I began to ask her, so if you weren't so angry, if you could somehow put that anger aside for a moment, what else might you feel? And what thoughts might be tied in with those feelings? She replied almost instantaneously, oh, I'd be very, very sad. And what's it like to feel sad? Oh, I don't like feeling sad. In fact, it makes me feel weak. Oh, so staying angry means you're holding on to control. Yeah, I can see that. And so feeling this angry has led you deeper into depression, even into thoughts of hurting yourself or getting divorced. But what you're saying is you're more comfortable with that than feeling sad. And if you could feel your sadness, connect with it, how might that change your anger? Well, maybe it softens it. Okay. And then what beliefs or thoughts does that sadness, that softness lead to? And she looked down. She said, maybe I gave my whole life to something I shouldn't have. Maybe I missed seeing something I didn't want to see. Now, this line of thought could lead to shame, which we don't want either. But hopefully you can hear by asking what else might you feel or what other thoughts or beliefs might come to you. There's movement. And when there's movement, you can stay away from a deepening depression or depression even starting. Yapko calls this cognitive flexibility. I'd add that it's flexibility of thought and of emotion. Recognizing that what you're feeling or thinking can be a reaction and that other thoughts or feelings could also be present. And when you realize that, you're much more likely to be able to focus on what you want to do or how you might cope with what's happened to you. What kind of reality do you want to create from this rather than being stuck in anger and victimization? So it's cognitive and emotional flexibility that's important here to be able to realize I'm stuck in one emotion or I'm stuck in one thought about this. What else could I think? What else could be my reality? What other emotions might I be feeling that simply aren't as easy for me to feel or admit? That's how you begin to challenge an internal orientation. You could also ask for other people's feedback about that. Ask how they see it. How might you interpret this and get some ideas from them that are perhaps more objective than you can be. I want to talk about this kind of negative, but certainly disappointed listener's review. I'm going to read it exactly the way she wrote it, because there are some things that I disagree with a little bit in what she says, although I get the gist of what she means. Here's exactly what she wrote. Hmm. The first episode I listened to rubbed me the wrong way. I've heard raving reviews about this podcast, so I was excited to listen. I can't remember which episode this was, but one episode in particular about what really makes you happy left me a little unsettled. The host and the guest started to talk about the people who were included in the longitudinal study, initially mostly white men because he started in the 1930s. Then the guest started to talk more about diversifying the study to women and also mentioned that people came from backgrounds from working class at risk background. 
He went on to talk about how people of color and Latinx and minorities were not really included because researchers didn't want to, in the host's words, contaminate the data. Well, I understand not necessarily wanting to start over with the data if you were quote-unquote, leaving it up to your colleagues to begin studies for black and brown people. Is the research conducted by Harvard a real set of data that is reflective of diverse experiences of all people, especially if you don't do diligence around making sure that all experiences are included in the work, even if you have to start over? And I'm saying this because this research has been so groundbreaking on helping people find what makes people happy. Can you really generalize when the research is not really reflective of every single American experience? I wish the host would have held space for a little bit more accountability or pushback there. Anyway, I will continue to listen. I won't let this jade my experience, and I'm looking forward to more episodes. First of all, I really appreciated her being disappointed, but still be open to listening. But I looked back at the episode that she was referring to. It was an interview with Dr. Robert Waldinger. I'll have that interview in the show notes if you want to listen to it. But this is exactly what happened, and maybe we didn't explain this very well. I'm quoting from the book. After starting with 724 participants, boys from disadvantaged and troubled families in Boston and Harvard undergraduates, the study incorporated the spouses of the original men and, more recently, more than 1,300 descendants of the initial group. So, there was an attempt to include non-Harvard students, obviously who back in the 1930s, I'm sure, were very white and even wealthy. So I don't think that there was no attempt at that, but it almost sounds like what rubbed her the wrong way was his sort of shifting responsibility for doing other work that would include minorities or indigenous people or whatever might be much more important to do. And how could we basically call this a study that reflected what happiness would be for all when there were still obvious discrepancies between what the general population is like and what his study included. So I also want to make sure that you understand the term contaminated the data. It's not that research on black and brown people would, you know, sabotage or somehow ruin the study. Contaminating the data is a research term where you have to start out with who you began with, and especially if it's a longitudinal study or a study over several years, and in this way it's been over 70 years, that you have to dance with the one who brung you, sort of, as my grandmother would have said. You have to stick with the people you started with. And actually, one of the major factors that made this study so different was that they did use the same people over a very long period of time. The interview process was lengthy and costly, and they had an incredibly low dropout rate. But still, the study is limited in how it might apply to all people, that's for sure. I very much agree with her that they still sort of started over with new data from spouses and then descendants. When I did ask him about the lack of minority subjects, he said hopefully those studies would be done by other researchers younger than he because he's in his 70s. But I can hear that left a bad taste in this listener's mouth as if it weren't that important. And it is important. But on Dr. Wallinger's side, I didn't get the sense that he discounted that that work needed to be done. In fact, I think he believes it should be done. So, what did I do? I googled studies on minority happiness in the U.S. and found lots of studies. So I'm damn glad that those studies are occurring. 
But it's interesting, and somewhat starkly, what I immediately could see was that even those studies seemed to disagree. One's abstract would say they found major differences between black and brown participants versus white, and others would say, no, not that much difference. So what I'm going to do is feature some of these studies in your show notes, and if you want, please read and learn about them. It's definitely important for psychological research to try to emulate real life so that it has meaning. I appreciate this listener's comments. I hope she's still listening, and I welcome all respectful comments and questions. So thank you very much. And thank you for being here. I know you have a choice. I know there are plenty of other mental health podcasts or even depression podcasts out there, and some of them are very good. So the fact that you're here with me really means a lot. We announced last week that Very Well Mind had said that self-work was one of the 10 best depression podcasts in 2023. I want to thank them again. Thanks to those of you who have either bought Perfectly Hidden Depression or working through it, or those of you who have read it and are leaving reviews, especially on Amazon. That's very, very special. Thank you. Someone had bought a used book and said what a great find it was and what a great read it was, and so that was wonderful. Don't forget that I'd love to speak to your group or organization. I'm looking forward to speaking to a construction group, Arkansas Asphalt Paving Association this week. I've had a nurse's organization reach out to me. I've had a doctor's organization, but it can be really any profession. I've talked to creatives. I've talked to medical management folks. You know, mental health in the workplace needs to be a focus for us all. So just contact me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com, and I'd love to talk to you. Thanks again for being here. Please take very good care of yourself, the ones you love, your family, and your community. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.